Here we are, right now. Although it's sometimes hard to believe, it's sometimes hard to realise, and what it exactly means is also something we can discuss, which is perhaps in a way what we are discussing always. Today, I'd like to talk about the most important thing. What could that be? What could the most important thing be? And in short, as it appears to me now how I feel to talk about it, in this situation with my current predicament of a situation or condition, set of conditions to be in, I would say that the most important thing is a calling. It's a kind of crying out for something. It's a kind of message that wants to be heard. The most important thing And this has all sorts of ramifications if you can take it on as something to think about, something to, dare I say, live by or aspire to. And of course, you can also say that, well, multiple things can populate that. Still, the most important thing can be a calling And that calling can take many forms. And of course it does appear to all of us in different ways, at different times. It leads us to different things. And yet also it doesn't appear to be so apparent. It doesn't appear to be something that we can easily identify within us as an idea, as a thought, as a life trajectory. So take this conversation, take these words now as a sort of coming back to that and we can discuss whether it's something even worthwhile or not. Maybe there is nothing that should be put as the most important thing. Maybe this idea in and of itself of putting something as the most important thing is not something we should really be doing too much of. And I will continue, as always, with an open sort of format. And I think if you've listened to me before, you're aware of that. You know how that is. You know how I talk. So I don't feel to really have too much of a polish for you, too much of a polished product for you here today, and I hope that's all right. But the thesis of today's conversation, the general thing that I'd like us to crack into, is this idea of the most important thing as a calling And we can pose it as a question. What is the most important thing? What is the most important thing? It seems quite daunting. It seems quite like, oh, come on, nothing's nothing's the most important thing. Why be so serious? Why put so much weight into something? And you could easily answer it by saying, well, the most important thing is to be open to everything. Everything is the most important thing. Well, that's an easy answer. That's a good answer. It could be used. It could be useful as a way forward. But part of me still wants to put something as the most important thing. 
And it can be practical. It doesn't have to be philosophical. Of course, the question, what is the most important thing, can also easily be answered philosophically, right? We can do a philosophical conversation of the question. But it doesn't have to be, necessarily. It can be something more practical, like you can say, well, your health is the most important thing. Happiness is the most important thing. Maybe happiness is a little bit philosophical (laughs) in some minds. (laughs) The most important thing is that you've got a tummy full of food and a roof over your head. That's all you really need. The most important thing is love. The most important thing is self-knowledge. And of course, when these answers come, they still sound, they still sound a little bit philosophical. It's very easy to get philosophical when we're talking about such big things like what is love? Okay, what is the most important thing? Love. So what is love? Can we answer that practically? Can we answer that philosophically? And we can go around and around like this. We can keep coming up with these answers. We can keep having these questions. We can keep having these ideas. And yet it lends itself to going around and around in circles. Because the real punch, the real grit, is when it actually makes an impact on you. It's when there's skin on the line. It's when we're really talking about the real deal. What does it really mean to you? It's completely personal. Now, when we talk philosophically and we talk about such big grand ideas, it's so easy to make them universal, right? Love, love is universal. We've all had experiences of love. We all have some idea of love. Health. Health is universal. We have all sorts of ideas of what health is and what health should be. And we continue this philosophical thing as if we can answer what is love, what is health, and the answer would be applicable to everyone. And furthermore, it would be applicable not only to everyone, but for all time. Love is eternal, and love is universal, says the philosopher. But for me, that takes it too far out. That diminishes the personal too much. And really, to make this closer to home, you have to make it as personal as you can. What is your personal experience of love? What is the name of the person that you have loved the most in your life? What are the bodily sensations that you feel when you are in love? What actually happens? When you are in love, where were you? What sort of things did you say? What sort of actions did you perform, do, make, have? And if we look at things from this sort of matrix of personal and impersonal or objective and subjective or interior and exterior, then it still holds itself to allowing you to hold things at arm's length. It's it's almost a, a little trick of the mind. It's almost like one of those tricks where you you say Okay, explain this to me, but don't use your normal explanation. 
and you say, okay, well, I'll explain it a, a different way. And then you explain it a different way. But yet somehow that still turns into the same sort of explanation that you would normally give. The question is, in that, again, how do we break that circle? How do you break that sort of around and aroundness? How do you break the habit? How do you really punch into? How do you... Yeah, I like, I like this phrase, punch. Like, a, like, how do you get a punch in the face? May I answer that realistically? If that's too much of an abstract question, what would you have to do to get punched in the face? Well, you'd have to annoy someone. You'd have to annoy the right person. And basically, you would have to say something that they disagree with and sort of argue with them about it. Now, in that is... A clash of beliefs, in that is a clash of worldviews, in that is a tension between understandings. It's two people that have these different spaces within them, which can't coexist, and yet they're somehow being pushed into close proximity with each other. When someone punches you in the face, they're in your personal space. They have to be within arm's length. There has to be some sort of relation that is built up to that. Now, most people, I think, would go through life avoiding that sort of situation. No one wants to get punched in the face. Most of the time, we can sense when someone's getting pissed off or someone's disagreeing and then just go somewhere else. A conversation ends before it really escalates to getting punched in the face. Now, the actual physical act of being punched in the face is only a sort of certain kind of conversation with a certain kind of person. If we take it as a metaphor, then you can say you can get punched in the face not with someone's fist, but with someone's words, with someone's comment, with someone's statement about you. It might be as simple as someone saying, you're wrong about that. And that can be the punch in the face. But it's the same thing. It's the same sort of drama. It's the same sort of tension of having the skin in the game, the clash of the worlds. When someone says, you're wrong about that, and it's a punch in the face, and it really hurts, then it means that that drama is unfolding. It means that that tension is there. And of course, someone can say, you're wrong about whatever it is that they're saying it about, and if you don't have the invested drama in it, then it might not mean anything. You can just say, well, okay, you disagree with me. Or that's your opinion. Or what do you know about it? You don't know anything about me. It's not a punch in the face. It's not, it's not the words, like the words, you're wrong about this. is not the thing that is the punch in the face. It's not words that are the core of the tension or the drama between worldviews, between people's beliefs. The words are just the sort of phonetic representation of that. They're just the incidental sounds that are happening beneath the clashes of the worldview. And this really does get to one of my core images or one of the things that can really help to understand what exactly is going on. And in so many ways, we are just a drama. We are just a theatre. The whole life is a stage. The whole world is a stage. The whole world is a story and so on that sort of idea. And if we boil it down, we see that 
it comes down to just two things that I can think of. And that is tragedy and glory. Tragedy and glory. And if we ask ourselves, well, what is the most important thing? And we see that this whole world is a tragedy and a glory. Then we can start to sense what's happening. We can start to sense... Well, what does it really mean to be in this world? And I don't want to say that it should lead us to do something. There's no call to action here. There's no, there's no sort of lesson of, oh, therefore you should live this way. Or therefore you should do this. Oh, therefore we should act this way. I'm trying to avoid that, at least for the time being. There's something that doesn't seem quite right about that. And if you look around, if you take a moment to really sense your life, how you feel, what you're doing, then you can easily fit it into this dichotomy of tragedy and glory and in so many ways well the tragedy dominates the most right there's so much that falls into tragedy there's pain there's loss there's hurt there's betrayal there's starvation there's desperation there's unmet needs there's struggle there's stress there's arguments there's disagreements there's collapsings, there's breaking downs of things. It's overwhelming when you really open to this. And I don't want to paint too bleak of a picture. Because to just say that life is tragedy is to get only half of the equation. Because there is also a glory. There is also celebration. There is also beauty, peace. There are things that you've done that you should be proud of. There are things that you can do that you would be proud of if you could do them. Just as there are things that you should be ashamed of just as there are things that you really shouldn't do again. And another thing about tragedy and glory is that the whole thing has a sense of intensity about it. Like when I talk about these things, when I have these things in the forefront of my experience, there's a kind of intensity. And there's some funny things that play into that. Which is, I think, in the crux of it, a desire for intensity. It's a kind of addiction. It's a kind of want for things to be alive through tragedy and glory. Now, of course, this is something that you can sort of lump all together into this one thing that can then be thrown out or sort of swept under the rug. And in fact, I think there's even something that is good in that. There's something useful in that. Because this whole the whole thing of dramatizing everything, of everything being over the top, everything being over the... It, it becomes like this... It, it can become like a, like a bad soap, right? Like if you see people on TV who have this drama and they're always, they're always crying so easily and say, oh, how could you portray me or... They're always laughing or they're always celebrating and saying, oh, I love you so much. You know, this, this sort, of, s sort of slapstick soap opera TV show, well, that's where it can sort of end up if you think too much about this thing of tragedy and glory.
And the reason it ends up there is because, well, we wouldn't want things to be boring now, would we? That would be the end of the world. I don't care if any, anything's a tragedy. I don't care if something bad happens. Just so long as something interesting happens. Just so long as things don't say, stay simple. I can definitely relate to that. I've definitely fallen for that many times. And perhaps the opposite, or well, not not exactly an opposite, but someone who would not relate to this whole thing of tragedy and glory and intensity and boredom would be the utilitarian. Or the one who is practical, the pragmatist. Someone who just wants to get things done. It's like, well, we've got a job. We need to do the work. We need to be productive. We need to create systems. We need to build things. We need to collaborate. We need to actually work on fixing problems. And there are solutions, so we just need to do the work and do the research and find the resources and get the technology and get the information, get the knowledge and so on, right? This sort of this sort of talk is the person who's... They don't have time for a tragedy or emotion or glory, really. They're just... They're the, they're the pragmatist. They're the practical person. They're the person that just wants to work. And that person misses something. That person normally isn't sensitive to their feelings. They're normally not sensitive to the world issues. They don't have an open heart. And of course, you should not take this as a push or a sort of exonerating of either of these or any of these as types of people or kinds of people or ways of living. We do need to be practical at times. We do need to be working at times. And the other thing that really might actually tie all these things together is this difference between reality and the ideal. Because the the person who is sort of all caught up in tragedy and glory can easily develop something which is unreal. It's a sort of imagination of how things are. And the pragmatist sort of spends their life in this ideal of what they're working towards. They're trying to build something which is different to how things are. And that's a dichotomy that both of these types of people really fall for. It's this difference between reality and the dream. Cold, hard reality, the facts of how things are, as distinctly different from how things should be, or how things could be. And of course, tragedy, tragedy really plays into that so deeply, because the thing that makes a tragedy so tragic is that it shouldn't have happened. That is something you wished would not have happened. And it did. Cold and hard as day, it did happen. And the idealist or the pragmatist is most pragmatic when they see how things should be and how much work they have to do to make things that way. They see an opportunity. 
or they see how the world could be better, or they see something great that could be built or made, or that would make life easier. And they're both falling for this difference between reality and the dream, or reality and the ideal. And of course, we all have our life conditions. Because it's easy enough to say that, well, we're all sort of in this situation where we have this idea of what life is and what we want to do with it and how we're making our way through it. And the idea is different to, well, something else. The idea sort of has things thrown at it. It has things that break it down, that pull it apart, that make it inadequate. And that is our life conditions. That is the reality of how things really are and how we actually do live our lives, how we actually do get things to work, get things to happen for us. And part of me wants to ask, well, is this a hopeful message? Is there a way forward? It seems to be a kind of thing that we're brought to. It's like, well, can we change reality or not? And of course, this is what the whole self-help motivational industry is sort of cashed in on, isn't it? That you create your own world. You can change your life. You can change your mind and therefore change how things are around you. Books like Think and Grow Rich, or The Richest Man in Babylon, or The Law of Attraction, or The Secret, these sort of self-help, new age sort of books have pushed this idea that your interior world has an effect on the exterior world. And of course, the problem with that is that everything is connected. The problem is that you don't really know where one thing begins and another ends. And if you look deep enough, deep enough into your mind, you don't know where it begins. You don't know where these thoughts come from. And you don't know how they're connected to your behaviours. You don't know how they're connected to what it is that you're doing with your life. Of course, thinking is not the only factor. There's also impulse. There's also perception. There's also feeling. There's also a sense of attention or attention span. And there's also just biological things like testosterone. I mean, one side of it is that, you, you know, like the, the therapist would say, well, everything comes back to family conditioning. Everything comes back to how you were raised. And you can say, well, if we learned anything from how we were being raised, there would be no one in jail right now. Because no one, no one wants to go to jail. Not really. No one wants their freedom to be restricted. And you would think, with life as it is, with the cultures that we have, and the rules of our societies, people would simply know that if you do bad things, you go to jail. Right? That should be the end of it. 
That's the idea behind jail, isn't it? Let's make a law that if you kill someone, you'll go to jail. Therefore, no one will get killed. There'll be no murder. Simple, isn't it? And yet funny that it doesn't work. Curious that we still have murder. And of course we have murder because of things like testosterone. Because we have biological needs. And of course, I'm just using testosterone as an example. It's an example that fits the case of murder. In many cases, not in all cases. But of course, biologically, we have a whole system of things. We have all sorts of chemicals running around inside us. We have all sorts of impulses. We have all sorts of effects. We have a nervous system with all sorts of complexes to them. And you can look at this and say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? There's obviously more than I can understand. There's more than I can deal with. There's so many more things out of my control that I can control. There's so much that I imagine that has nothing to do with reality. There's so many circles that go around and around in my head which I get stuck in. And you can say, well, what's the most important thing? Out of all this, out of all these sorts of backs and forth, all these different personality types and ideas of tragedy and glory, Why don't we just introduce this one thing, this one point, and we say that's the most important thing. And use that to gravitate towards. Use that to revolve around. Use that as something to work on. Use that as something to make sense of what's going on, knowing that any sense that you do make will be incomplete and will have to change and develop. And if we get a little bit more abstract about this, we can say that the most important thing has its characteristics unto itself. It has characteristics like a person has characteristics. The most important thing wants to be known. The most important thing wants to be realized by you. The most important thing wants more people to realize it and to bring it into existence. Like if existence was a person, wouldn't it want its best manifestation to come about? Wouldn't it want to reach its full potential? Wouldn't it want to be as beautiful as it can be? Perhaps that's the most important thing. It's for existence to be the best that it can be. But of course, that's, that's too nebulous. That's, too, that's still too far off in the distance. 
to be of any practical use to you. Or me. So the question remains as something that must be populated. And I'm reminded again of certain figures that have contended with this. Of course, the philosophers from ages past come to mind. I believe if you asked Socrates what is the most important thing, he would have something to say about it. And here we get to the exact issue that we began with. We got to the exact circle that comes up when we ask this question, what is the most important thing? For Socrates, that was a question of importance. That was a question that he would have to answer like a punch in the face. And if you read, if you actually read about Socrates, some of the things he says are like a punch in the face. It's like a real hit with the words. It really gets into you, really breaks apart your beliefs, really breaks apart your ideas. And of course, I believe Socrates pissed off a lot of people when he spoke to them. Because he revealed their ignorance. He would say things that were a punch in the face to them, metaphorically speaking. And that's why he got so pissed off, or they they got so pissed off at him, rather. And yet now, centuries later, millennia later, Socrates is this philosophical figure. He's lumped in with the philosophers. Whenever we bring up Socrates, it's this sort of far-off, distant, sort of holding things at arm's length kind of discussion. It's so easy to say, well, what is the most important thing? Well, Socrates had this to say. Socrates answered it like this. And that's missing the point, I think. The point is, well, how was he saying it? How was he speaking those words forward from his being? How was he putting his life and his beliefs and his vision of what reality is on the line to answer that question? What is the most important thing? Now, of course, Socrates is just one example. There are many Greek philosophers that had different ways of answering this question. What is the most important thing? Diogenes had the way of saying, well, why don't you just cut out the things that are not important? Just live in a barrel, naked. You'll find the most important thing when you cut out all the things that are not important. That's one I really need to remember. That's one I really need to work on. And of course, Plato and Aristotle as studies of Socrates, or understudies, or the next generation, had many things to say because they could sense the life that was in Socrates. The inspiration that Plato got from Socrates is one for the ages. It's one for the history of humanity. So much Plato got because of Socrates. So much he wanted to learn. He wanted to discover. He wanted to live up to. 
I believe in so many ways, Plato loved Socrates. And his writing is a testament to that, that Plato would spend so much of his life writing and studying and doing the things that he did really is just a way of expressing that. It's a testament to that. And Aristotle is a bit different. He's in a different school, I'd say. I don't know if I'd put him in the same category. Some would, some would say Aristotle missed the point. Some would say Aristotle got sort of swept up too much in the philosophy. Too much in words, too much in ideas. And therefore missed this sense of personal, close to home, life on the line, inquiry into what on earth is going on in this life. And as I say this now, it's still not quite close to home enough for me. It seems like just lighten up a bit, you know, like just don't be so serious. Why are you be being so heavy? Like why do things have to be so like they've got too much reverence to them? Like I want to have a joke. I want to have a laugh and just, you know, have a giggle or something. Because this whole thing of like what what is the most important thing? This this intensity has something that is it's it's too much if you do too much of it. It's like, well, you can't keep that up. Right? You can't you can't go through your whole life like that. Life life is way too more complicated than that. There's so much there's so much more than, than life has to offer. I mean there are so many different situations, even in each day, that you can't navigate with that sort of attitude. You can't just walk into every room and say, well, what's the most important thing? I mean, you could try that. <laughs> I don't know what it would look like. And perhaps this is me stepping off the abyss too much. Perhaps this is me just leaping off the edge into the clouds and floating around. Which I think maybe is what we're brought to when we go deep enough into this question, what is the most important thing? Really, the only answer is everything. Everything is the most important thing, like I've said before. And that space is something that you're brought to only with a sincere inquiry, only with a sincere openness to that line of thought. And it's a space. I mean, I use this word space like it's not quite an experience, it's not quite an attitude, it's not quite a feeling. It's not quite an it's not quite a state, although you could call it a state depending on what sort of meditative practices you're working with and what sort of language you're using to describe meditative practices. But I like this word space. It's it's something different. I mean the word the word state implies too much that it's encompassing of everything it's too arresting whereas space is is less arresting it's less overtaking everything there's still there's still something of you that remains when you when you're in a state there's no you you are the state whereas when you're in a space there's still a sense of 
what has been before, what you have been before, the person that you are, in a certain way, even if it's in just a small way. And of course, these words can't really speak far enough forwards. Like, you can't speak your way into it. Or at least, I wouldn't say that you could. I mean, I'm starting to sort of get to that point now. (laughs) I'm sort of having to double back on myself. (laughs) I mean, to reason yourself into an answer is different to speak yourself into a space. There's a difference between those two things. Because if you use if you use logic and rationality or a kind of didactic way of speaking and you arrive at an answer, you can do that and yet remain in the same way that you were before you did all that reasoning. So say say you've got an idea or you've got a question and you start discussing different answers or different things it could be. And then you say, well, no, this answer is better than this for this reason. And this answer, well, we need to change that around a little bit. We need to sort of tweak it and adjust it. And then, well, what about this? And what about this situation? And you're sort of going back and forth. You're reasoning. You're using your logic. And if you do that and you come up with, okay, well, here's the answer. Here are the words. Then that's just one level. That's just one layer. That's just the mind. And in fact, I might even say that it's a kind of defense. There's a kind of thing that doesn't want you to change into a space. It doesn't want you to be put into a space. And the mind will resist that by giving you an answer. It will give you clear reasoning. It will give you logic, logical answers, logical processes. But if you are going for the other levels or you're trying to really break in, then you can speak your way forwards enough to actually go into a space. And I mean, I'm sort of, I I know I'm contradicting myself here because it's like you, you can speak yourself forward to a certain point. And then the space takes over. Then something else happens. And I don't know what it is that defines those two things. I don't know what the difference is. Like, what, why is it that when someone talks more, they just become more rational and they become more clear-minded And yet when another person talks more, they become less centered in their mind to the point where their mind evaporates. Perhaps it depends on the structure. Like if we were putting this into a meditative practice sort of paradigm, then you'd say, well, it's a technique. Right? It depends on the technique. Or it depends it depends on the question. Like is the question who am I more likely to lead you to a open space than a question like what is the most important thing? And in some ways, yes, but in another way. No, because all questions lead to the same answer. All questions lead to the same place. And maybe it is just the case that some questions take longer to get there. (laughs) Some questions lend themselves to being philosophical questions. They lend themselves to didactic arguing and reasoning and logic. 
And you could say, well, what about maths? Like, like an equation in a, in a certain way is a question. An equation only has one answer and it can only be arrived at through the structures that it's held within. Perhaps the, that's the absolute extreme, right? That's the, that's the rationalist in their cold, hard, fundamental, dogmatic extreme. And perhaps the opposite of that would be poetry, right? You ask, you ask a poet, you know, what is love? And he just sort of looks up at the stars and flutters his eyes and smells the roses and he doesn't say anything. It's just like, ah, like that, right? So those are the two different ways forward. Those are the two different sort of sides to it. But I don't know if the type of person comes into it by the same way that the type of question comes into it. Like, what, what if you ask a, a, a mathematician, what is love? Or you ask the poet, you know, what... You, you go to the poet, well, here's the equation. It's written out on the whiteboard. And it's a big sort of mathematical thing with all these different, you know, the square root and fractions and numerals and algebra sort of things. I don't really know enough about maths to sort of illustrate that very well. But I guess I guess in both cases, right, the the mathematician is going to be like, well, why are you asking me that? And the poet is going to be to the equation. I don't get it. And that would lend itself to, well, what are you getting out of it? How could you be a poet that appreciates mathematical equations? And how can you be the mathematician that has deep, powerful experiences of love. And I think that hints enough at this answer to the question that the most important thing is everything. The most important thing is to appreciate maths and poetry and love. And to go on rational, logical reasonings. And to also know their limits. To also know how there are certain things they can't bring you to arrive at. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for rationality. I'm all for making sense. I'm all for clear-mindedness. And yet there are things that can't be arrived at through words. So, these are a few of my thoughts that are bouncing around today. And I'm in a very different space to what I normally am when I turn on the microphone. And it's my life conditions, it's my interior world that is different. And I'm not sure how much to say exactly right now <laughs> about it. Is there really much to say at all? I don't know. I mean, I've said in the past that things do need to have a kind of personal twist to them. I do so often put my bring my personal stuff into these conversations because I see that 
It's the only way to make it real. It's the only way to make it sort of in that space of, you know, well, close to home, skin on the line, real, down-to-earth sort of that sort of conversation. Yet it's it's not clear to me. And there's no there's no call to action here. There's no moral. There's no philosophy. There's no thing that you should do. There's no lesson. And in so many ways, these words are just things that I need to hear for myself. I'm really just speaking to myself. It's things that I need to remind myself of. It's things that I need to be aware of. And in the past, I've wondered how much is actually revealed to me through my own talking. I've wondered how much is confused (laughs) by my own talking. (laughs) I don't know if it's really helping at all. It might be that, well, I mean, when it comes to that, I think, you know, something does want to say to me, yes, it is something worthwhile. It is something that is positive. It is something that is good. And there's a lot more that I wish I could say that I can't. And of course I do suffer at times under how I wish things should be, how I see things could be, even though they're not. So I guess we'll wrap up the conversation there. I don't know if I've said anything at all. (laughs) It might be that it's just empty words for this one. And of course, maybe that's what's needed for this time. Maybe that's just part of some bigger scheme that I don't know about. So... Thanks very much for tuning in. I hope you're having a beautiful day. I hope you're all right. I hope you're doing what you need to do. And I normally say at this stage, I'll be back soon with more. But I don't know if I will say that this time because I don't know if I will be back. I mean, I've got a lot of things happening at the moment And it might be that I won't be back soon with more. It might be some time. So I'll be back when the time is right, when I feel that things are back where they should be or back when they... uh, I mean, things are quite heavy. You could probably tell by my tone at the moment that things are a bit heavy and... My, my attitude has always been to just share however I am, to just go ahead with things as best as I can, wherever I am, whatever is happening. But I don't know if I'll really continue like that always because, well, I'm always trying different things. And of course, there's plenty more that I'd love to share that I'd like to share when the time is right. And I will share when the time is right. But I just don't know when. And of course, there are online courses coming. That's something that's sort of in the works. It's proved it's proven a little bit more tricky than I thought. It's proven to be a lot more challenging than I thought, which is why it's not quite underway as I had previously hoped. And of course, other things have come up which were unexpected. So that's just how life is. It's how the curveballs get thrown at you at times. So, I will be back. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know what it will be like when I come back. But for now, stay safe, stay beautiful, and thank you very much. My name is Dosta, and bye for now.